This is Mark Stein. Winter is a big blah, so it's time to get out of town with the ultimate cabin fever reliever. Join me on the 2024 Mark Stein Caribbean Cruise, sailing from Florida to the Bahamas, Jamaica, the Caymans, and Mexico for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Britain, Europe, the House of Lords. And we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. December 27th, 2023, the third day of Christmas. Have three French hens on me, or have uh, three French henorinces on me, if you have my post-cardiac whitened head. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time, 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, 4.30 p.m. in fabulous Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 8 p.m. in London and Dublin, 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin, 10 p.m. in Kiev and also Tel Aviv because that's the zone where they're holding all the wars. Uh, 11 p.m., at the southern tip of the Red Sea, where the world's shipping is under attack from Houthi drones. Uh, 11.30 p.m. in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. 1.45 a.m. in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 4 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers. I'm sorry about that. 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. 9 a.m. in Auckland. A far more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeree, and even deeper into Thursday in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific, where they've probably had their New Year knees up and are well into 2024 by now. Uh, if you're already sick of winter, uh, imagine how you're going to be feeling at the end of February. So why not book a stateroom on the Mark Stein Caribbean cruise? Like the man said, it's a week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse with uh, Ava Velardinger broke, Conrad Black, Leilani Dowding, Bo Snurdly, Michelle Buckman, and more. Uh, go to MarkSteinCruise.com for more info. It'll be after Iowa, after New Hampshire, after South Carolina, so you won't be missing anything, and you can just do like everybody else does, and get a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend to send in your mail-in ballot to a state you don't live in, and fingers crossed, the judges will have graciously permitted your candidate 
uh, to remain on the ballot. Breaking news from Austria. The Lauder Business School in Vienna has announced the end of its partnership with Harvard University because of Harvard's anti-Semitism. Uh, if you've ever met, uh, if you ever met uh, certain older Austrians a few years back when they were still walking around, you will find that one of posterity's better jests. Uh, an Austrian academic institution breaking off ties with Harvard because of Harvard's anti-Semitism. Uh, and no, not because uh, Harvard is anti-Semitism is a bit weak tea for the hardcore types, uh, the Teutons of Austria. Uh, it's because they think Harvard's anti-Semitism is too virulent. Okay, let us get to your questions. Elisa, Elisa Angel says... Uh, we, we, we're, we're taking stock. It's the last Q&A of 2023. So we're looking back and we're looking forward. And Elisa offers us her 2023 significant event, the slaughter of 1,400 and the kidnapping of 240 Jews and others on October the 7th, followed by the worldwide celebration by Hamas enthusiasts. Will jihadi chic remain fashionable in 2024? If not, what might turn the tide? Well, the way to bet is that it will, will remain fashionable. I mean, we see have seen absolutely incredible scenes that don't actually make a lot of sense. Uh, the uh, the uh, assaults on Santa Claus in Canadian shopping malls, uh, the traumatizing of children at a Christmas carol concert in Melbourne, uh, and some of the more openly genocidal uh, remarks. I mean, we've, we've all been arguing about these uh, presidents from elite American institutions. And as you know, I said, which I think has been borne out by recent weeks, that the, the point to bear in mind about the president of Harvard is she's a hack. She's a mediocrity. She's, she represents the decline and eventual death of a great institution because she's crap. That's why she has to steal everybody else's lines. Um, the only reason she has that job is because she's a female and she's black, which is the sweet spot for the moment on the identity totem pole. And so she's unsackable, even if every, uh, every line she ever said had been stolen, which is, by the way, what plagiarism is. It's an act of theft. It's actually stealing uh, my paragraph. I'm not saying that the awful president of Harvard would ever make the mistake of stealing anything I said. But stealing my paragraph is the equivalent of stealing my television set. It's an act of theft. So the president of Harvard is a thief. And uh, she, shouldn't, she, should, she should have been gone aged. But she's a black female. That's the only reason she got the job. And that's the only reason she stays in the job. Because that's the kind of sick world the American Academy has uh, become. But uh, so she represents, aside, setting aside the Jew hate and all the rest of it at Harvard, she represents the decline of a great institution into 
mediocrity and total crampness that will eventually destroy it. Because uh, in China, say, they're not appointing people based on whether they're uh, female or belong to an approved racial group. Um, so eventually places that just pick the best people to run those institutions, their institutions will be better than American institutions. But set that aside because I understand that uh, it, it is an, a strange world we live in. But the Jew hate is bigger than that. Uh, and sometimes it all swims into focus, like when you have people shouting death to the Jews and gas the Jews outside Sydney Opera House. That's the one I mentioned because uh, I appeared at the Conservatorium of Music there. So I, I think of it as uh, a great venue, a great uh, beacon of civilization and all the rest of it. Uh, and in fact, people uh, gathered around it uh, shouting gas the Jews and death to the Jews. The Hitler comparisons, you know, John Cleese was doing Hitler shtick and got some pushback for it today because he was, he put up a list of, you know, five ways uh, Hitler was better than Trump. Knock it off with that. J John Cleese, I'll say this to my former GB News colleague, and someone I used to have quite cordial relations with, he'd send me a note from time to time if he liked something I'd said in The Spectator. But you used to be a cutting-edge comic. And the Hitler shtick is, we're way past Hitler now. Because, as I said, a week or two after October the 7th, and this is why it's a significant event, and Elisa is quite right. Set aside the Jews, set aside Israel, set aside whether you could care less about Israeli babies being burned uh, and, uh, and left as charred lumps. Set aside the pictures of women bleeding between their legs as they're carted off semi-naked for their corpses to be put on display in Gaza. Set aside that. I understand a lot of people don't care about dead Jews. But you should care about your own society. And this is what's interesting to me, and why we're way beyond Hitler. As I said, a couple of weeks after October the 7th, the government of Germany had to hold the 1C conference, the one that decided the fate of Germany's and... Uh, the rest of the Reich's Jews, they had to hold that conference in secret. Because if you'd actually said on German radio, oh, uh, they're going to be holding a uh, big conference uh, to finalize our plans for killing all the Jews. Uh, even the sort of go-along-to-get-along, not all of them, but a lot of the go-along-to-get-along Germans, uh, would have said, oh, wait wait a minute, you're going to kill all the Jews. I thought they'd just all agreed to move somewhere less fashionable. Now, there's a lot of self-deception in what went on in German cities, you know, asking no questions about where the elderly Jewish couple who used to live in the flat upstairs suddenly disappeared to. But they didn't have people in the streets shouting death to the Jews. You... Uh, when uh, you reach that stage, uh, you're actually way beyond 
Third Reich territory because it's safe to do your 1C conference uh, outside the Sydney Opera House. And what does this mean? I think it means that uh, we are headed for an awful lot of violence on a terrible scale and actually possibly worse than the world wars in the years ahead. Nothing good is going to come of this. Nothing good is going to come of dehumanizing first one group and thinking, oh, well, we don't really like the Jews, so we can dehumanize them and call for death to all the Jews, and it'll just stay with those Jews that we don't like. It's going to go beyond that. It's already going beyond that when you see some of these... Uh, well, actually, it's already going beyond that. I mentioned earlier today these hundreds of Nigerian Christians massacred uh, over Christmas. And we see it uh, in the uh, assaults on churches and the desecration of churches in Europe. Uh, we are uh, accelerating towards a world of even greater violence. Uh, Eric Dale says, Mark and fellow club members, could someone explain to me what is a hootie? <laughs> what is a hootie? And why am I being made to care going into the new year? How is it that the Uni Party has been able to maintain its absolute power despite supposedly free elections where majorities change hands but policy never does. Is Joe Biden just a repeat of George W. Bush? We have unwon wars around the world. Our troops are being attacked in Syria and Iraq. Who knows what they're still doing there in the first place? And the concentration of wealth into the top percentage runs unabated. Will a financial crisis help Biden uh, complete the trifecta? Yeah, the whole point is that if you what was interesting about the first Trump impeachment, this was over his Ukrainian telephone call, uh, the beautiful call, a uh, perfect call or whatever Trump said it was. And the assumption, and we remember we had all these striped pants guys from Foggy Bottom, the career diplomats, who all testified that uh, somehow Ukrainian policy, uh, and this is before the war, which is interesting in hindsight, but they all testified that somehow Ukrainian policy shouldn't be, with, be within the purview of the head of the executive branch of the government. So that when you elect him, you know, OK, it might, he might be able to lower your taxes or he might be able to increase this welfare program. But there are whole other elements of government that he shouldn't really be going anywhere near because they're inviolable. They're not really partisan. They're just agreed and they just cruise on regardless. And you have this little sort of dinner theater ritual of democracy where the people supposedly elect their leaders. But these uh, striped pants guys in Foggy Bottom are the important people who get to, because they're experts. And we all love, especially after the COVID years, we all love experts. And these uh, experts are so expert that they should just be allowed to get on with doing their own thing while we pretend that elections actually change anything. And that is, uh, that I have no idea why self-governing people 
think that is an argument you can make. Even if you have the low view of your fellow citizens that readers of the New Times, uh, New York Times do. Eric also, what, did, what was this? What was your first? Oh, what is a Houthi? Oh, that's a fascinating uh, question. I think, wasn't that Rwanda? The Rwandan uh, genocide, wasn't that uh, Houthi versus Tutsi? Tutsi Wutsi versus Houthi Kuchi. Oh no, the Houthi Kuchi dancers about that gold rush uh, saloon in the Yukon I like to go to back in the 1890s. Uh, uh, is that what I'm thinking of? Uh, what, what is it now? How does it go now? The old hooty owl, hooty hoots from above. Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in love. Oh, the old hooty owl. That's a species of Yemeni owl uh, that appears on a Debbie Reynolds number one record. Uh, so I hope that answers your question, Eric. No, the hooty... Uh, it's uh, the guy, it's, they're named after Imam Al-Houthi, who was a big shot Imam, is a big shot Imam, from North Yemen. You don't need to follow this. The great thing about when you're the global superpower is you don't need to get hung up on the local details. You just intervene. You might as well toss a coin in the air and pick which side you're going to uh, come down on. Because uh, the superpower are tourists in the heart of darkness, like John McCain uh, and his chums going off to be photographed with some guy in Syria. And of course, he turns out to be one of the big jihadist guys. What does John McCain get? He's like, to John McCain, he's some great freedom fighter. He's going to bring Scandinavian social democracy to Syria. I mean, it's all a joke. The What's going on in the Red Sea uh, and why should Eric care about it uh, is because a lot of the world's shipping, uh, for, particularly now that everything is made in the Far East, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff you buy at crap you like, it has to come from the Far East. And in order to get to the West, uh, it, it comes through the Red Sea and then up into the uh, Suez Canal and out into the Mediterranean and to the Western world. So if you have enjoyed the disruption of the supply lines that has been going on, I mean, my uh, supermarket, my local so-called supermarket is basically, it's still COVID 2020 there, the disruption to the supply chain. So there's going to be even more uh, supply chain disruption. The Houthis say they're just droning ships that are going to Israel, but they don't really know which ships are going to Israel. So they're sort of droning more generally. And the shipping companies are, um, are withdrawing from the Red Sea. So it's interesting uh, because we're in a so-called unipolar world that has existed since the Soviet Union went belly up three decades ago. And uh, what is happening is that the United States has uh, no credibility. Uh, nobody, no Houthi, uh, fears any consequences for droning ships in the Red Sea. And it knows that even if the United States were to go to war, it would lose that war because that's what the world's most lavishly funded military does. So I'm not in fact, the poor Ukrainians are just learning this. They, uh, they, a lot of them 
uh, two years ago believed all the rubbish. Oh, look, uh, Joe Biden's got our back. Yeah, well, how's that working out for you? Uh, Ukraine's populated. There, every uh, tons of people fled Ukraine. The people who stayed, there's now guys in late middle age who are being called up for military service. Oh, what 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 about the great uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive? Yeah, yeah. What about it? You know, it's not good to teach the world that if you go to war with the United States, you're going to lose. Uh, but that's something that the the uh, Afghan uh, female university student, well, female grade school students in Kabul are learning that lesson. The Ukrainians are soon going to be learning that lesson. And the Houthi are laughing and just stocking up on drones. The, the, the Pentagon, here's where I just, the boring bollocks of so much conservative commentary. I, I saw my friend Rich Lowry, my old friend Rich Lowry. Actually, he's not even an old friend. He, I think he cut me dead the last time I ran into him in a green room. Um, but <laughs> that was shortly before Fox terminated him. Anyway, um, Rich Lowry at National Review wrote an editorial that, you know, would have been perfectly respectable if you'd written it in the... Uh, early spring of 2002, which, when it was still just about possible to believe that America was serious about winning the war on terror. The fact is, uh, the military-industrial complex is a thing, and it's a racket. So when Eric talks about uh, unwon wars, that's, that's all that suits them. If it's a racket, then the best kind of racket is one that goes on forever, like 20 years in Afghanistan. It would be no good. They don't want a six-day war because <laughs> nobody makes enough money in it. So I, I, would, I would like to know what the right has to say about that. Don't forget the guy, you know, Victoria Newland, who uh, cooked up this Ukrainian war. She's in the government. as She was in the Clinton administration. She was in the Bush administration. She was in the Obama administration. For some reason, the Trump administration didn't require her services, but she was back for the Biden administration. So for 30 years now, whoever you vote for, you get Victoria Newland uh, in the government. Uh, and... Uh, a conservative approach to this should be that the American way of war doesn't work. It certainly doesn't work for the poor bloody infantry. It certainly doesn't work to those who come back missing limbs and having to live on food stamps. And we're supposed to be pleased because people start charities for war heroes, right? Because the guy hasn't got any limbs. He can't get a job. Uh, he can't live in an ordinary house because it's full of things that he can't negotiate, like stairs. So you have to build special houses for them. You know, we treat uh, our soldiers uh, treat as a, as a charity. Well, the idea of war as a sort of tragedy, like a tsunami, oh, the terrible things have happened. and we No, why don't you concentrate on winning the war rather than sending multiple generations of Americans to have their limbs blown off 
in these places. The, the, the Pentagon should be closed down. It actually should be closed down and America should... I don't want to get... You know, I don't want to get annoyed, but I am getting annoyed. Tom Lewis says, Mark, what's your opinion of Vivek Ramaswamy? Swami, upside and downside. Russell says, I am amazed Vivek Ramaswamy has not polled better in the primaries. Looking at it from Australia, he appears to have chosen the right path as each controversial question was raised. Trump is nothing like the Trump of 2015, and DeSantis is not showing leadership when required. Why hasn't Ramaswamy been more successful? What am I missing? Well, as I said, I only know um, Vivek Ramaswamy from dinner. Uh, with him and uh, Tucker, uh, I think about a year ago, uh, just before he decided he was going to run for president, uh, and we all had dinner in Maine. He's a very sharp guy, a very articulate guy. And his ability to, you know, get to the heart of it, particularly with Nikki Haley, who would be a disastrous choice of uh, of candidate uh, he's he in that sense is like the trump of 2015 you know when uh trump basically killed jeb bush's candidacy with the epithet low energy jeb uh ramaswamy is is doing things that trump did in 2015 um, when he invited uh, Nikki Haley, who's in favor of war on three continents, to name three provinces of Ukraine whose borders are so inviolable. And, and the look on her face. I mean, he's very good. He's very good at things like that. Now, obviously, he, he's... he's uh, if you want to know why his numbers aren't what they are, the thing is he's... He's like three months older than whatever the minimum age you have to be to run for president. He's very young uh, at a time. He's basically half a century younger than Joe Biden. And people think, oh, you know, there's people who think obviously he's just some glib, clever young'un uh, doing these jabs at his olders and, and betters. And then, uh, you know, again, he's um, he's... It would not. I. I think there is a sort of uh, Hindu factor, as it were, in that there's people who just think, "Wait a minute, why is some Hindu teenager running for president of my country?" I think there is an element of that that you should. Why doesn't he wait until he's fifty-five, or better yet, leave it to his grandchildren or whatever? I think there is an element to that, but the. But these are all peripheral things. He's polling at about 5%. Um, because in the latest uh, poll of polls at uh, Real Clear Politics, uh, the um, uh, Trump is at over 60%. He has an over 50-point advantage. He's got like a 52-point advantage over the second place guy, which is DeSantis. And uh, if you look at the Fox News poll, in fact, that was done a week before Christmas, 
Uh, he's at, uh, he's basically at 70%. He's at 69.2% or something. You know, there was nothing like this for Trump in 2015 or 2016. Trump uh, is uh, above 60 points and headed towards 70 points because a huge chunk of the Republican electorate has decided that the criminalization of political opposition is the issue here. That's their, they're objecting to that. And what, em, and what embodies that is Trump. Now, I, I see clever lines uh, from Ann Coulter said this the other day. She said, just because someone has been unjustly indicted is no reason to make him president. And that's a cute line. But the thing is, uh, it isn't necessarily true. Not when the leading, not when the state, uh, to put it in parliamentary terms, not when the, the government is trying to put the leader of the opposition behind bars. Then that becomes the central question. And things like Nikki Haley wanting to launch the Third World War become a bit peripheral. Uh, the system, the crapness of the system and the need to, for an act of political hygiene is what's made this an untypical primary. So, but, but again, to go back to the Ramaswamy question, here's the thing. You've got close to 70 points for Trump. You've got, uh, you know, DeSantis is number two, but he's on the slide because uh, Nikki Haley's uh, coming up behind him. But he's still worth another 10 points, and you've got five points for Ramaswamy. So you've basically got 85% of Republican primary voters. 70% see Trump and what's happening to Trump as the issue. 10% want Trumpism without Trump, which is what DeSantis is offering. And uh, Ramaswamy is coming third because he's sort of splitting the difference and he's offering Trump-friendly Trumpism. Uh, and between them, they have 85%, which suggests that, you know, 85% of the Republican Party do not want to go down the Jeb Bush, Nikki Haley route. Uh, Russell adds a PS. <laughs> I didn't see this. Uh, you should put your PS in the same question, but he says, uh, I think Nikki Haley will get the GOP nomination and win the general. Would you like to explain that, how that's going to happen? You know, uh, there are states, including my own, including New Hampshire, which are quite Nikki Haley friendly. She appeals to a certain type of soft right female voter, which... There is a certain percentage thereof, in, particularly in the southern third of New Hampshire. But I don't see how you get, you know, when, if, if uh, you can't run as a repudiation of Trump and a return to neoconnery, when 85% of the primary electorate are basically voting for variations, uh, of uh, of Trumpism, so I don't see uh, that uh, that happening. Um, we're going to uh, that's uh, that's just how I see it. You don't have to agree with me. You can send in something uh, explaining why you think that's all uh, rubbish. Um, let's pause uh, from the passing Sherry Vary for a brief musical interlude. 
Uh, a few weeks ago, I was thanking uh, Brandy Edwards uh, for sending me a beautiful photograph album from the Mark Stein Adriatic cruise. Um, I certainly hope Brandy is coming on our Caribbean cruise, as I hope that uh, you will be coming on our Caribbean cruise. Um, but I especially hope Brandy is, because she does this, the best photographic album. So in return for that, I played a song for Brandy called Brandy. Uh, Brandy, well, you came and you gave without taking, which you may know better under another name, Mandy. Well, you came and you gave without taking. Um, but it was originally written, that song, as Brandy. And I mentioned that I'd seen its author, Richard Kerr, at the Society of Distinguished Songwriters Dinner, the SODs, um, their annual ladies' night in London. And Richard and his wife, Charlotte, were having a very tough time of it a year ago. And his performance that night was full of emotion. And uh, I'd love to recall some great... Uh, insight from that evening. Uh, but instead, what I remember is that Richard was late, so he missed the parade of King Sods at the start of the event. Um, and I was talking to uh, Mrs. Carr, and she said it was because their miserable London car service had failed to turn up. And I said, oh, yeah, who was that? And she said, Addison Lee. And I said, oh, I hate those guys. They're the worst. Uh, and I suggested that we get a class action lawsuit going. I could do an hour on Addison Lee's lousy car service, but we're going to save it for our world's worst car service special. Um, and that night, in a certain sense, it seems a long time ago to me because it was my last social event before my health entirely shut down my social life. But it also seems like the day before yesterday. I can't believe it was 12 months ago. But a lot has happened since then. Richard Kerr died earlier this month, and at this year's Sod's Dinner, uh, they paid tribute to him. This is another song of his, one he sang a year ago in a very emotional performance, expressing very directly how he felt about Charlotte. Charlotte was terribly sick a year ago, and so as we watched this performance, we all knew he was singing about his wife sitting just a few feet away, and instead, uh, 12 months on, Charlotte is still here, and it's poor Richard who has died. Uh, this was a top five hit for Dionne Warwick in 1979. In fact, it was the song that launched the second half of her career, the post Burt Bacharach and Hal David phase of her career. Um, but Dion wasn't the first uh, to sing it. No, the very first recording was by one of Charlie's Angels, uh, the monster hit TV show of the time, Cheryl Ladd. You looked inside my fantasies and made each one come true. Something no one else had ever found a way to do I've kept the memories one by one And since you took me in I know I'll never love this way again I know Oh 
sometimes you can have the hottest star of the moment and she just does nothing for the song. Doesn't connect with it, might as well be singing the phone book or her note to the milkman. So here's the composer's own take on what he didn't yet know was going to be a very big hit. This isn't his harrowing and powerful performance from last year's Sod's Dinner in London, but from 44 years earlier. But it's still better than Cheryl Ladd. No disrespect to that beautiful angel. Richard Carr, I know I'll never love this way again. You looked inside my fantasies Made each one come true Something no one else had ever found a way to do I kept the memories one by one Since you took me in I know I'll never love
month singing his own song I know I'll never love this way again and I don't know whether anyone taped his performance a year ago at the Sods dinner the Society of Distinguished Songwriters but perhaps you had to be there it was one of the most emotionally intense performances I've ever seen and as I said almost everyone in the room was aware he was singing it for his poor devastatingly sick wife uh, sitting just a few feet away and Charlotte has hung in there and Richard hasn't. Popular song is a difficult uh, balancing act uh, you'll be familiar with Noel Coward's uh, famous line about the potency of cheap music. Uh, it is potent, uh, and it can also be cheap. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I know I'll never love this way again is a slightly overwrought sentiment. You'd never say that, would you? I know I'll never love this way again. But on the other, if you put it in the lyric, you have to go all in. And uh, I know the more cynical among you are scoffing. I know I'll never love this way again. Isn't that what that Senate staffer was saying when he filmed himself having gay sex on the Senate Judiciary table with half the Senate Judiciary Committee watching or whatever it was? No, 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 no. We have songs like that for the very reason that they say things we would not quite articulate in speech. And uh, Richard Kerr's catalogue certainly exemplifies that. Rest in peace, Richard. Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A live around the planet. It's 20 to 9 Greenwich Mean Time. A little behind, a lot ahead. According to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth, let us get back to your questions. The Notorious Mr. J, possibly not his real name. The Notorious Mr. J writes... How vulnerable is Rudy Giuliani really? This is in reference. I'm uh, January the 16th. My own trial in a uh, civil case, a civil suit in the District of Columbia starts on January the 16th. Uh, so uh, my jury will be drawn from the same pool that Rudy Giuliani's jury was drawn from. And how'd that work out for him? And how's it going to work out for me? The notorious Mr. J says, I've heard commentary to the effect that the court judgment against him is ludicrous and easily quashed on appeal, and that by declaring bankruptcy under federal law, he is at least temporarily putting his assets out of the midst of Georgia state law. What say you? I say that's bollocks by wankers which a surprising amount of, what do you call it, uh, commentary uh, is. Um, for, a start, for a start, appeals are... Uh, appellate courts are generally deferential to trial courts. So they're not really in the overturning business. And further to that, appellate courts are particularly deferential uh, to jury trials. Uh, you know, they may overturn a judge because a, you know, a, a judge ruling somewhat mercurially and not taking this point of law or whatever into... Uh, in, into uh, account, but they're much more reluctant to overturn jury trials, uh, a jury verdict. 
And in this case, don't forget, here's the other thing. And you might say, uh, oh, because both Giuliani and I uh, are on trial for defamation. Now, the difference is this, that Giuliani uh, conceded, he's, he's since walked it back, but he conceded that he had, he, he had committed defamation per se, which is what opened him up to these punitive damages. Defamation per se, the common law taught. And um, so the jury didn't have to decide whether they were going to find him guilty or not guilty. He'd already thrown in the towel on that. All the jury had, the jury had no other function except to decide the amount of money they were going to stick him with. And this is where all this, oh, appellate, oh, appellate court will, oh, blah, 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 blah. It's one thing for an appellate court to overturn uh, the amount of damages where you basically, you're basically saying, yes, the jury, uh, the jury got it right when they found him liable, but uh, sticking with him, sticking him with four hundred and thirty bazillion dollars in damages was a mite excessive. So we're going to reduce it to two million dollars. Um, I think an appellate court is much less likely to do that when the amount of money was the only thing those jurors were there for, because as I said he'd thrown in the towel on the defamation per se. What's happened since then, of course, is that he's standing outside the court and he forgets. And I don't quite get why he's doing this, because I heard Rudy Giuliani, he's Mr. Snurdly's warm-up act on WABC, and I heard his show the other day, and actually he was on cracking form there. He was trenchant, vigorous, it was like... Uh, Rudy unchanged from his uh, heyday as New York's mayor in the 1990s. But instead with this, he comes out uh, of the, outside the courthouse. He says he doesn't regret any of it. And um, he told the truth about these two women. So he's actually denied the findings. He not only denied the decision, uh, the findings of the court, but he's also, uh, and I'm not making any, you know, uh, this is the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt justice system of the United States. It's a filthy toilet of a justice system, and it's awful. It's ruined my life. It's cost me millions of dollars, the crap of American justice. So I loathe it, I hate it, and I'm quite. And there is nobody who has a lower opinion of American judges than I do. Nevertheless, uh, when he came out and he said he told the truth, and uh, they did this, and they changed votes, and and he repeated the libel. Uh, the the point he seemed to have forgotten that he'd already thrown in the towel on that. So I find that odd. Um. So, so an appellate court is going is only going to have this question of the monetary damages, which is the only thing that the jury ruled on. So it's what they devoted their entire time to. And look, here's the point. Here's, as I said today, he's got nothing. His girlfriend is a lady from New Hampshire, and I joke that they'd be back here living in a rusting double wide down the road. 
he's got he, this. He won't be all right. You know, uh, he's not going to be all right at all. He's finished. He's broke. He's more than broke. Every penny he has from now till the day he dies will be taken by these women in uh, Georgia and whoever his... Uh, he's got 11 other, I think it's 11 or 12 other suits against him. They, the point is uh, they, they want to make the price for joining uh, Trump too high. I mentioned Peter Navarro. Uh, Peter Navarro came on my show, I think it was last year or the year before, and he said, oh, do you mind plugging my bookmark? Because I'm in this uh, basically January the 6th uh, legal problem, and I want to use um, my uh, book royalties to fund my uh, legal battle. And I, I, I did my best not to laugh because unless you're J.K. Rowling, nobody's book royalties can fund your legal battle. As I think I said, I've been in this stupid case in D.C. It's over my share of the legal bills is over five million dollars, you know, just postponing the trial. Uh, you know, me flying to D.C. and discovering uh, as we land and we're just motoring along to the terminal at whatever that lousy airport is, uh, that the judge had decided at the last minute to uh, cancel the trial. That just that was another 50 grand. You know, you can't. You're ruined. General Flynn is ruined. Peter Navarro is ruined. Rudy Giuliani is ruined. Um, even peripheral figures like Jenna Ellis are ruined. How many people do you think are going to want to uh, serve in the next Trump administration, assuming for the purposes of argument that he's going to be permitted to win? Uh, it is evil what's going on in America. And, and just let me get this out of the way. I can't, I can I listen to Rudy, who's... Mr. Sirdley's warm-up act at WABC, and, and it's very good, but, but that's because he's been through the ringer. I listen to all the big top-rated guys, with very few exceptions, and I can hardly bet that the, the supposed number one radio show, it's like, it's like trivia. They don't realise that uh, the present regime is gutting the key pillar, like equality before the law, if you don't have equality before the law, and if you have the prosecution of uh, anybody who matters in the opposition party, you know, it's not where the conversation needs to be. Um, uh, that's, that's just the, uh, you know, that's just the way I uh, feel about it, and I'm pretty unhappy about it. Uh, Chris Davis says, Mark, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas, and the new year brings you happiness by defeating Michael E. Mann and Ofcom, and prosperity adversely improved health. Um, with the exception of the Markside Cruise, there is little cause for civilizational cheer in the developed world in 2024. Having received my copy of Hit, Vilda's Mark for Death, along with my wonderful Liberty Stick, I'm struggling to find much hope in repressing the tide of Islamification that you identified in America Alone and After America. The fact that all three books 
are over a decade old and the world has singularly ignored them is of little comfort given the further strides made by the cultural enrichers in the interim. In rush speak, we are way past time to panic. Is there any hope for our debt-ridden, high-tax, open-borders world? Or, or are we already over the cliff now? <laughs> Have a wonderful new year, says Chris. And also uh, on uh, that uh, kind of... Uh, uh, topic. Idaho Bob says, Hi Mark, it would be easy to be depressed this holiday season. The airports are flooded with a steady stream of relocating migrants sporting their new sneakers, blue jeans and identical black hooded jackets. Uh, friends and family are mostly unawares of the situation. Uh, and a few that are familiar with the problem are in cognitive denial. They're expecting the situation to improve after the next election, after another 4 million plus uh, distributed across the country. From your vantage point, can you offer any cause for optimism? Well, these, these are extraordinary numbers. I, I think if you'd asked uh, most Americans uh, in, say, 1970, whether they would be interested in the population of the United States rocketing up to 500 million uh, by the end of this century. I think they'd say, no, I don't know about that. I'm not uh, so sure about that. Um, most, uh, it, it, a, a free country can only stay free if it's either got a small population you know, such as Norway or New Zealand, or it's highly decentralized as America uh, traditionally was. It isn't so much now with all your federal mandates and things. So this is the end of America just on the numbers. But secondly, the numbers are, are ludicrous. There is no rational basis for importing the population of Norway or New Zealand in the first couple of years of the so-called Biden administration. There's no reason for that at all. However, and, and by the way, the other reason I'm not interested in the, um, where, where the Republican Party wants to go on this is because they're useless. Uh, the four Republican debates... You know, the only time it was the one with the chicky, the Hispanic chick from Univision or whatever she's from, uh, who just wanted to talk about immigration all the time, except from the point of, oh, what are you going to do about the dreamers? You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. That's not the Republican view of Im immigration. So here's the optimism, Idaho Bob. 85% of the Republican electorate is saying to the Republican establishment, including most of these stupid debate moderators, screw you and your debates. 70, getting closing in on 70% for Trump. And I take what people say that this isn't the Trump of 2015. He's not. He hasn't, uh, you know, the, 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 other than his attitude to the indictments, and other than that fantastic mugshot, uh, this campaign isn't anything like the campaign of 2015. But people, but this is the thing. Because no, 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 wait a minute. Uh, the, the conventional wisdom 
is uh, uh, when Trump started being indicted, is that people would be would recoil from a man who has been uh, criminally charged. And that hasn't happened. In fact, the more they do this to him, and in fact, basically in co the Colorado court, they treated him as someone who's been convicted of a crime um, and basically a convicted insurrectionist. And, and so what could be worse than that? This man, a, a court of respected jurists, has found this man guilty of insurrection. Well, what's insurrection? Well, it's a kind of fancy word for treason. He was trying to overthrow the government of the United States. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh, it, uh, and I wasn't so keen on him this time around, but now you mention that, I think I'll send his numbers up to 65, 68, 73%, whatever. So we have like close, closing in on 70% for Trump. Then as I said, we've got another 10% for DeSantis, who's a lousy candidate, but uh, is holding the line on a lot of the policy things and his whole pitch. He's not doing a Nikki Haley. He's, it's not a return to George W. Bush. It's not uh, unwon wars on every continent. He's saying, uh, I'm, I'm, I, policy-wise, I'm in favor of everything Trump's in favor of, uh, but I'm not an indicted criminal. Uh, and that's another 10%. And then, as I said, we have the 5% for Vivek Ramaswamy, who's basically running as Trump's mini-me. So you have 85% of the Republican electorate which is, you know, uh, what is that closing in on, on the basis of uh, uh, the, the so-called official vote last time, right? And that's closing in on 70 million people who are saying a big, they're not just opposing Biden, they're opposing the House-trained Republicans saying, okay, you've had your fun, now it's time to go back to neocon Nikki. And they're saying, uh-uh-huh. We're not ready to do that. It's quite extraordinary. It would be something interesting uh, to talk about in the, uh, for Conservative Inc. to talk about, but they can't get over their condescension, uh, which is why a lot of commentary on this is immensely uninteresting. I would say there's a similar pattern going on elsewhere, Idaho Bob. I'll, it's not true in His Majesty's dominions which are in a slightly uh, not slightly part of this phenomenon but the interesting thing in uh, continental europe say is the the, the most progressive uh, social democracies in europe are saying yeah no it's time for something else that was the hit wilder's victory in the netherlands um there's similar trends in Scandinavia. Um, and yes, in Italy, we all got excited about Georgia Maloney and then somehow they nobbled her uh, going to support uh, my friend James Dellingpole's theory that uh, if you actually make it into the top leagues of politics, they've got all this compromat on you. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as far down the rabbit hole as James, but that is making a lot more sense than 
Uh, well, it certainly makes as much sense as any other theory. But then if you look at, say, France, you know, and the people are looking at these numbers for Marine Le Pen or whatever, and I don't know about... I mean, she's been around a while now and she never quite closes the deal uh, come the election, and maybe she won't do it this time. But we do know this, that the Macron presidency is a failure. And she inflicted a very um, severe defeat on him regarding immigration uh, just uh, a couple of days ago. So we are seeing, you know, there are, whether, as I said, in the end, everybody is Georgia Maloney. They talk a good game on the stump and then they're nobbled within a few weeks of taking power. I don't know. But I think if we, here's, well, just put it as most basic. If you, look at the, if you look at the numbers in the swing states that will decide the next American presidential election, the Democrats are going to have to work very hard at stealing it. Now, they're brazen and they are determined to steal it. That's why getting him thrown off the ballot is important to him, important to them. Um, but... Uh, Trump is making the Uniparty and the deep state work a lot harder. Well, no, not Trump, really. The Republican base, as I said, this 85% of the Republican base says, uh, OK, screw Nikki Haley, screw Mike Pence, screw Chris Christie, screw Asa Hutchinson, screw Tim Scott. Screw no, no, we're hardcore. We ain't going for the smiley-faced banalities of a Tim Scott. Uh, or Mike Pence, and we're not going for the warmongering of Nikki Haley. 85% of us basically think this is a Trumpist party. And there's, this is a... This is a the, the determination to ignore the message that the Republican base is sending the Republican establishment, which is a far more basic message than it was in 2015, 2016, when he never had numbers like this from the base. They get that the issue is the integrity of the American Republic. And that, uh, and, and that to allow, uh, to allow uh, prosecutors, uh, to allow deep state Machiavels, to allow hack judges, to allow uh, the banal centrist buffoons who've got every uh, so-called centrist buffoons uh, who've got everything wrong this century to determine the only other the course of the only other party apart from the Democrats, they're not they're not uh, going along with it, and it's actually kind of. Uh, inspiring uh, when you when you start uh, looking at it. Um, so uh, that's the, that that is a cause for optimism, Idaho Bob. Dan Phillips writes: I have walked and shopped Oxford Street many times. Um, is Oxford Street in Idaho? No, it's in uh, Central London. Uh, it's the main drag in central London. It's a rather unprepossessing street, to my mind, compared to, say, Regent Street. Um, but uh, when I was at the BBC, um, I used to leave Broadcasting House and walk the few yards uh, down to the intersection uh, at Oxford Circus with Oxford Street. 
Um, and, uh, and, and the reason Dan brings up Oxford Street is because on one of the busiest shopping days of the year, as he puts it, a thousand Islamists blocked the shops to intimidate Christmas shoppers, and the cops make not one arrest, nor any of the royal family has murmured a peep, and the king uttered only fatuous pieties about climate change. Fraudsters all. Yeah, it's important this. Basically, the Metropolitan Police are among, must surely be among the world's most useless constabularies, allowed an Islamic mob, a well, a pro-Palestine mob, basically to destroy uh, those retail outlets' business on one of the busiest shopping days of the year. Um, actually, I mentioned Rudy Giuliani. One of the things he was talking about is if you hold a protest in New York and you're given leave uh, permit to hold your protest, you're not allowed to block more than half of the sidewalk. Uh, in other words, so people are, who aren't interested in your protest, whatever it's about, whether it's about, uh, you know, Gaza or climate change or transgender bathrooms, whatever it is, you can't block more than half the sidewalk in New York because people who aren't interested in Gaza or transgender bathrooms have to be able to walk up and down and uh, get to Taco Bell or whatever and get their taco. And that didn't happen. And he and Rudy says, you know, the, the law is if you block more than half the sidewalk, we'll arrest you and close down your demo. Uh, well, that didn't happen uh, in Oxford Street. Instead, the, the police have acted since October the 7th as the accomplices of the Palestinian mobs. And this is, uh, I'm not even referring to the, you know, when the coppers pose with the little cute five-year-old moppet who's dressed up as a suicide bomber or whatever. I'm not even talking about that stuff. I'm just saying that generally their view has been to facilitate the uh, Islamic annexation of the public space, which is very important to Islam. And, uh, that's, and, and what happened in Oxford Street is... If you're a resident of the United Kingdom, that's your future. Um, a, a friend of mine, a, a dear friend of mine, uh, was uh, in Piccadilly uh, and went into a coffee place, you know, Starbucks or whatever. I don't, I'm not sure there is a Starbucks in Piccadilly, but it was some other one of those kind of places. And he was waiting uh, for his cappuccino macchiato and a bunch of the guys in the Palestinian scarves came in. And they gathered all around him and wanted to know why he didn't have a scarf. And he actually was braver than a lot of people would be in that situation. He said, oh, well, if I was wearing a scarf, it would have a different flag in it from the one. He basically dared them to beat the crap out of him. And uh, I thought that was uh, courageous. But the funny thing is, if they had beaten the crap out of him, the Metropolitan Police would have stood around and watched. So what's going on here? I first sort of thought about this in France and Belgium. I, I, I've talked about uh, being in Molenbeek, uh, where the uh, jihadists who killed uh, all those people at the Bataclan Theatre in Paris had been holed up in his family flat 
just across the square from the police station, hiding in plain sight, supposedly. And uh, that seemed odd that you could do that, but it doesn't seem odd when you then look at who the coppers are, and an awful lot of them are Muslim in that uh, part of Belgium. And then I noticed a similar thing in certain uh, French towns, that uh, there's a lot of visible minorities now in the French police. When people talk about, oh, when is the state going to clamp down on, you know, the provocations of Islam, they sort of assume that the police force it looks like the uh, police force of a Western nation in 1957, and uh, then there are all these uh, angry incomers. And it's not like that at all. Uh, once you have the demographic advantage that Islam has, you know, who are your policemen? Uh, who are your soldiers? They're young people. Well, the young people in French cities and Belgian cities are, and English cities are increasingly Muslim. So they're going to be your policemen. So why be surprised that when there's a big pro-Palestinian demo, uh, they decide, the, the police decide, ah, you know, uh, we're going to get used to that. That's your future showing up. Um, Alison Castellina writes, The enemy works overtime at Christmas to ruin it. My own was devoted to seeking a dentist to remove my mother's rotten tooth. Still no success. She herself disliked my Christmas nut roast so much <laughs> that she flicked it across the table saying, this is inedible. Probably due to dementia triggered by a tooth abscess, but she may have been right. Thankfully, others all loyally ate it. Uh, triggered, uh, possibly realizing it was not rancid. This is in reference to that story about all the shoppers in the United Kingdom complaining to all the big supermarket chains, Tesco's and Sainsbury's and whatever the other ones are called, um, that uh, they'd uh, paid 60 quid for these turkeys and... Uh, opened it, put it in the fridge, and when they got it out, discovered it was rancid and mouldy. Uh, Alice, uh, and that's part of my nothing works anymore thing. That's like the supply. You don't really need hooties to disrupt the supply chain because for whatever reason, the supply chain seems to be disrupting itself now. Um, question, says Alison, do you think Dickens overdid his Revive the Child Inside version of Christmas? Should it now be rebalanced and wound down a bit now that a lot of its expense, stress, burden and labour falls on full-time working women? Well, there were really uh, three phases to Christmas. There was the old 12 days of Christmas thing, which was a great bacchanalian uh, uh, festival going on till Twelfth Night in uh, English villages. And um, I'm, I'm not ill-disposed to that, actually. <laughs> and then Cromwell uh, decided he didn't like that and so put an end to it. And that sort of is the version of Christmas that first caught on the first settlers in America uh, didn't celebrate Christmas in that Bacchanalian 12 days thing. 
they were revolted uh, by that. And then uh, Dickens and Prince Albert sort of semi-revived Christmas, but as a more family-focused uh, festivity. And we talk about that in my introduction to A Christmas Carol, if you haven't, if you haven't yet heard that. My, my, I like, um, I like, I like Christmas, but it doesn't have to be like that. Uh, this time last year, my, I was, you know, I'd, I'd just come out of hospital, um, and I, I was in a very wobbly state, as it were, uh, and I was in France, and my family were thousands of miles away, and my uh, darling daughter flew in and decided to take care of me for Christmas, and um, we had a we had a very low key Christmas uh, because you know she she didn't we I didn't I couldn't go out I couldn't go shopping and get a lot of presents or uh, uh, you know tons of food or big tree or anything like that so we had a very modest low key uh, Christmas and I. Uh, rather enjoyed it. She was she she swung by uh, on the way back from Zanzibar. She's currently with her brother in British Columbia, <laughs> where <laughs> uh, I shouldn't really laugh about this, but they actually had a rather grim experience. Uh, <laughs> prompted her to say uh, that uh, she thought there were fewer crazy people in Zanzibar than there are in the average Western city these days. But be that as it may, I, I think, you know, I, I uh, just going to crap you like and loading up with tons of crap, I don't think that's what Christmas is about. I don't think Dickens said that's what Christmas was about. Um, and I don't even think the 12 days of Christmas as a village bacchanal uh, is, uh, is a sort of deadsville. as uh, just going to crap you like and filling the trunk with uh, rubbish. Um, Andrew Curl from Lexington, Kentucky says, Merry Christmas, Mark. I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed listening to you read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Also, while my family and I made Christmas cookies together, we listened to several of your Christmas Song of the Week shows, White Christmas and Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, and then your Christmas Eve Lessons and Carols show. We enjoyed all your Christmas shows so much. Everyone also got to see the Christmas present I bought for myself. My Mark Stein Liberty Stick number 155 hanging prominently near the stockings. Thank you for everything you do, Mark. And I wish you a happy and healthy new year. Thank you very much for that, Andrew. Um, and, and it means a lot to me that our Christmas Eve show, which I just started on a whim, really, during that terrible uh, year or two, longer in certain places, where the governments had basically shut down the churches. And, uh, you know, the governor of New Jersey sent state troopers to uh, arrest people going to church. The government of Alberta uh, arrested pastors and put them in jail. And even where that didn't happen, 
whether you're talking about the pathetic weenies at the Church of England or the big guy in the Vatican, they all meekly submitted to the closure of church. So we just started this thing where I do lessons and I just read the same scripture from the same Holy Bible that every other church has. And the only difference is that because we don't have a thunderous organ and a big choir, is I just ask a few pals to come and uh, sing the carols. And they're generally all amenable to it. And if you haven't yet heard this year's show, have a listen to Rhoda Barfoot uh, singing um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Rebecca Enkin singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and then uh, Mary, uh, Jan, and uh, Ema singing the Coventry Carol, um, which I put in really because I'm tired of reading stories about children being attacked whether that's happening in Israel, whether that's happening in Nigeria, whether that's happening in French parks, in Annecy, in the Haute-Savoie. Um, so I included the Massacre of the Innocents and then as the appropriate carol, uh, Mary, Jan and Ema sang the Coventry Carol. Um, and if you haven't yet heard it, I hope you, I hope you will hear it because uh, I think it Musically speaking, it was perhaps our best show yet. So thank you very much uh, for that, Andrew. It is the third day of Christmas at Stein Online. Uh, to go back to what uh, Alison uh, was talking about, uh, we, we still do the 12-day Bacchanal here. The third day of Christmas. So let's have another song by Richard Carr, who died earlier this month. This was a smash hit for a couple of guys called Batdorf and Rodney uh, who took it on the Billboard Hot 100 in America to hit sound number uh, 69. That's all. So then Helen Reddy did it and made the top 20. That's pretty good. It's better. And then Barry Manilow recorded it and cracked the top 10. But I, and that's actually quite unusual for three versions in the basically within a year or two of each other to all make the charts. Uh, but I have always liked this version of a Richard Kerr's song uh, from a couple of years before her monster hit with Betty Davis Eyes. Here is Kim Carnes. I found love enough to hold you Tonight I'll stir the fire you feel inside Until the flames of love enfold you Laying beside you Lost in the feeling So glad you opened my door You're my song 
like it's a secret you've been keeping Laying beside you Lost in the feeling So glad you opened my door Come with me Somewhere in the night We will know Everything lovers can know You're my song Music to magic to it singing Richard Kerr's music and Will Jennings' words. We'll just go on burning bright somewhere in the night, as I hope the memory of those we have lost this year surely will. Rest in peace, Richard Kerr. We will remember more absent friends in the second part of our last call special. That airs New Year's Day at Stein Online for Thursday... The fourth day of Christmas. We couldn't afford four calling birds, so we only have one bird making a call, but it's Laura Rosen-Cohen with Laura's Links. And Laura rounds up the internet as nobody else can. Don't miss it. If your Christmas presents stunk up the joint, make up for it by giving your beloved the belated gift of a Mark Stein Club gift membership or a gift certificate, either of which can be digitally delivered within moments. Or give your darling something he or she or whatever non-binary pronoun is preferred, the gift of a lifetime, an unforgettable week on the Mark Stein Caribbean cruise. Stay safe, stay free, stay well. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.